I invite you to, we're going to concentrate on Titus chapter 2, but I want to read Exodus 19, some verses from there first, before we turn over to Titus 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there with me. And it is a privilege to be with you. I've never been a sub for a sub before, so it's always, always a first time for everything, but these are crazy days, so. But it is good to, I love seeing different instantiations of Christ's flock in different places. Get privileged to have the privilege to be able to do that. So, Exodus 19, and I want to just read verses 3 through 6. 3 through 6, this is the Israelites have arrived at, at Sinai, and right at the mount, and God calls Moses up and has something he wants to tell Moses for Moses to relay to the people. So Exodus 19.3 reads, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then over to Titus 2. I'll just read this whole chapter, though our concentration will be on verses 11 through 14, but let me read the context. Paul's giving instruction to Titus, that young elder on the island of Crete, and he tells him, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about you. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. 
declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is indeed God's word. Let's pray and ask him to open our eyes to hear it, to receive it. Father, we, we recognize that the very existence of the Bible, a book from you, testifies to our need for more than mere human words. No earthly words will do. So take your word and speak to us, Father. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of this, your holy law. And may now the words of my mouth, the collective meditations of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. In the name of the word made flesh, Christ, we pray these things. Amen. So if we gave a title to this, let's call it Grace Has Appeared. Just taking words right from the Apostle Paul there at the beginning of verse 11, chapter 2, where he tells us that grace has appeared. Now, most of us probably know the Apostle Paul planted a lot of churches, a lot of house churches throughout cities and regions. I think that was what God had given him the grace to do and called him to do. And that's what you do when the good news of Jesus Christ is unleashed on a pagan or unchurched place. Right? People come to Christ, and they need a church. So you start churches. And like Crete here, where Paul is writing to Titus, it's exciting and exhausting to get new churches organized. I don't know how many of you have participated in a church plant. I don't know, maybe Faith was a church, was a church but I'm not sure. But uh, it's exciting and it's exhausting to get new churches organized, to get elders, deacons, to help new believers with the basics of Christianity, to, relate, to learn to relate beliefs and behavior, to bring those into to consonants together, and just all of the kinds of things it takes to get a church started and going. And sometimes the soil is particularly hard, like Crete, the particular place where the church is started. Um, Crete, if you, you could historically read about people commenting on that little island, they said that the, the Cretans were a people of ingrained avarice, right? Very greedy and desirous of excessive wealth and material gain. And that they were people, another guy said, that were steeped in treachery and an equitable public policy. This was a particularly hard, immoral place. And Paul himself, even in chapter 1, quotes a Cretan uh, to show how bad the Cretans were. Right? He says, even one of your own. He says, you're, all of you are liars. Which, if he's lying, then they're all truth-tellers. It's a right, logical conundrum. His point, though, is you're so bad that you even say this about yourself. You even acknowledge it, right? So here's the question. What does it take to populate a pagan place like Crete with churches of transformed people and families? 
closer to home. I, I don't know exactly what town this is, somewhere in Maryland, Cumberland or something, right? What does it take to populate a place like Cumberland? Or more dramatically, D.C. or Baltimore, right? With churches full of people who've been changed at a deep and fundamental level and look and smell like Jesus. What does it take? I think Paul would sum up his answer in one word. Or at least one of his answers could be summed up in one word. It takes grace. The Church of Jesus Christ is not a social institution with people undergoing behavior modification or psychological uplift. It's an institution of people who have experienced the profound and transforming grace of God in Jesus. And that's what I just want to elaborate a little bit on from this passage. Luke chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. The grace of God has appeared. It has been manifest. It's seen. And it works. And so three quick points. Let's look at grace as a reality that comes to us from outside of ourselves works profoundly on the inside and has this transformative upside. It's the three directional words just to kind of organize our thoughts. The outside, the inside, and the upside. First, the the outside. Paul begins his little discourse in verse 11 on this grand, gracious action of God and Christ by connecting it to the previous ten verses, right? When you see a four, you ask, what is it there for? Well, it's there for what he just said in verses 1 through 10. In those verses, he was calling people, right, older men, to be a certain kind of way and exemplify a certain kind of character, to younger men and older women, to younger women and to bond servants. He's calling all of them to, in a very practical, earthy way, to live lives that have been reordered by Christ, that have been totally changed and are being changed. And his point in verse 11 is do that. Do what I said in verses 1 to to 10. Love your spouse, love your children, labor faithfully, be dignified, right? Do that because God has done this. He's manifested Jesus Christ and grace in Christ. In fact, the only way, the only way they can do the stuff in, in, in verses 1 through 10 It's because God has done what he's done in verse 11. Christianity is a do because of what's been done. (laughs) We can only be changed. Again, we're not into behavior modification. We can only be changed and lead dignified lives and put our little coats and ties on and be all nice and raise our kids. We can only do that as a true believer, because of what God has done already, right? Because grace has appeared in Jesus Christ, bringing salvation. And more to be clear, right? Grace is 
It's, it's God self-initiated. Not, nothing he sees in us, there's no transactional thing that kind of causes grace. It's his self-initiated, redemptive action toward lost people. Right? He comes to us because we can't go to him. We're helpless. So grace is God doing what we can't do and what only he can do in coming to us in a fallen world. We know, love the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We know it, and then he describes it. For though he was rich, beyond all splendor, right? For your sakes, he became Poe. That's the way you say Poe. So poor you can't even afford the O-R on the end. Poe. That we by his wealth might become rich. By his poverty, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the grace of Christ. He comes to us in our inability, in our lack, right? And gives us his riches. So the very first word to the church, to God's people in Jesus Christ, the very first word is, is grace. That's his first word to us. Because grace has appeared. And it's from outside of us. We do well to remember that we can't cause it. We do well to remember that we are less capable and able than we even realize. And are needy beyond our capacity to even take in which makes grace all the more beautiful, right? And I know, as fellow sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, with their tainted blood coursing through our veins, (laughs) we are ambitiously autonomous people. We love singing Frank Sinatra in spirit, if not word. We do it our way. (laughs) Out of our strength, right? So we're often very busy commandeering our lives, even our Christian duties, and doing that as if it depends upon us ultimately and fundamentally, right? I mean, think about the stress. Think about how harried our lives get. Think about how often you feel, at least I do, feel harassed by unmet expectations, my own, those of others, right? How often we hide and shame and harbor just a real spirit of exhaustion instead of a peaceful, prayerful, persistent, unanxious faithfulness that trust and realize that God has moved and operated first. That this doesn't all depend upon me. Right? We often think, you know, we're, we're going to get stuff done by human grit, not divine grace. So we need to remember that any transformation of life, any first, any Timothy, any Titus 2, 1 through 10, and other passages that talk about change and character formation and things, that that is first 
It is first a work of grace that brings that about. Right? Our lives are a drama of grace from beginning to end. But it's not only a work from outside, right? The grace of God appearing to us in Christ, coming to us, God coming down to us. It's not only a work of grace from, that, that operates from the outside, it comes to us from the outside. It actually does some work on us on the inside. That's what Paul gets into, right? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Here's what it does. That grace that has come in Christ trains us. That's a great word, pedagogy, for formation. Right? Shows us that this doesn't happen in one moment. <laughs> trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and goes on to live self-controlled. Okay? Passions. Self-control. That's stuff that happens on the interior, in the interior life. We can look at each other and we can't read each other's passions that are going on, but we can see the outworking of our passions. Right? So un, the, to renounce ungodliness is to renounce probably just all the actions of ungodly behavior. Just basic impiety. Right? That's the external. The internal is the desires. The worldly passions. Not just passions, because passions are good. But worldly passions, corrupt. The ones that are according to the age. The spirit of the age. The devil, the flesh, the world. Right? The kinds of desires that are in keeping with that. What grace does is it works on us at the deepest level. Trains us. At the level of our passions, our desires, our longings, our yearnings. And it educates us and trains us to say no to worldly passions, to, re to renunciation. Grace trains us in renunciation and saying no to, to disordered desires, sinful passions, worldly passions. Augustine was right. You see, right about a lot of stuff, right? Uh, he says, we are what we desire. We're not what we think. We're not brains on a stick led around cognitively. We're motivated and animated by what we long for, what we want for, what our, what our desires are, right? You think about what's the greatest commandment. Christ himself tells us it's to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? That's desire. To have a sin, desires that are ordered and centered on the one who most significantly matters, God himself. To love him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we are what we desire. And those desires may be good or evil. And the powerful work of grace in our lives is to redirect desires, right? Good desires to, the right, to a right end. To renounce evil desires. Renunciation. And again, this is important because our passions and desires drive what we do. I had a professor that said, the body goes where the heart has already gone. <laughs> so if I see you out in a grocery store this week, and I ask you, oh, how'd you get here? You're not going to say, oh, I just appeared here in the grocery store. I don't know how I got here. You didn't even want it to go to the grocery store. You, you, you desired it for whatever reason. The body goes where the heart 
has already gone. And so grace is at work in us, helping us renounce evil, worldly desires and passions. I'll never forget when I was pastoring in Manhattan, I had a meeting one night with some leaders, and it was in a really nice part of uh, uh, Central Park West, if you know Manhattan, right in the middle of Central Park West, the 60s, 70s, which just has all these multi-million dollar apartments and, and uh, brownstones and things like that. And I had to walk across it to Columbus Circle, a place that's a little further west in the park. So I get off the subway and I'm like sitting there, I'm just scheming and, and devising, planning how I'm gonna meet with my leaders and getting excited about pastoring them. And I get out of the subway and I have to walk about a half a mile or so through the nicest brownstones that you, know, you would ever see, right? And so I'm walking through and I'm looking all these brownstones. And by the time I got to the Starbucks I was beating with my leaders, I was thinking, you know, it would really be nice to be a millionaire <laughs> and not a pastor. <laughs> and I was like, why didn't I get an MBA as opposed to an MDiv? What, what happened there? We talked about avarice a little bit earlier. It seeped into my heart. I saw the worldly, it was like Pilgrim's Progress. I'm looking at this. My pastor salary ain't gonna get me one of these right my passions and you can easily see how that unrenounced can quickly put a person on a path toward avarice that seed can become an oak <laughs> if not renounced this is why grace teaches us to renounce worldly passions. So, and it's so easy, and not just, even our, even, you know, we gotta even be careful here too, because there's, there's good passions, uh, and good aims, or a, a desi good desire goals that can have kind of these secret, clandestine, bad motives, right? This is why Christians confess not just evil words and actions. We, in our confessions of sin, right, we, just, we don't just confess the external, the words we say and the actions we do, but also our heart dispositions. With the psalmist, we cry out, search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Don't just help me change my behavior. It's so easy to even offer sacrifices with hearts that are far from willingly sacrificial. Very easy to do that, to do good even from a bad motive. If you've ever read Robert Louis Stevenson's the, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, right toward the beginning, the first, the first victim of Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll takes the potion and he's transformed into Mr. Hyde. His first victim is laying in a street or somewhere and a policeman comes and doesn't recognize who the, the, the deceased man is. And so he calls a, a barrister who, who, who knows and, uh, that someone died and, and comes and he looks at the man, right? Uh, his name was uh, Utterson, was the name of the lawyer or the barrister that the cop calls. And Utterson says, oh, this is, a, this is a distinguished member of parliament. 
And to that, the officer respond, responded, who was you know, no big, he wasn't a kind of a big deal and in the police force or known anything. He says, well, good sir, is it possible? And then Stevens puts this little note in there. He says, in the next moment, his eye lighted up with professional ambition. This will make a great deal of noise, he said, and perhaps you can help us uh, to this man. What's going on? His desire to solve the murder case took on new fervor, right? But it was the fervor of ambition (laughs) and desire for recognition, not the desire to solve a murder case, right? Worldly passion, ambition, unbridled ambition, fame, recognition, right? Worldly passions. Grace teach us to renounce those kinds of things. Empowers us to, to say no to that. But of course the work of grace hasn't ended when we've renounced sin. It hasn't ended there. It aims for a wholly renewed life in the inside working itself into the outside. Internal insight into our passions isn't change, right? The lived life must be different categorically and totally if grace is at work. So it's not just renounce, renunciation, Paul says there's this replacement that goes on. We, we, we put off one thing. We say no to one thing, and we say yes to some other things, right? We, he says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to positively live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, right? We say no to ungodliness. We say yes to godliness. This is what grace does. We, we renounce sin and worldly passions, to be replaced with these gracious virtues, these grace-induced virtues of of self-control, uprightness, and just categorically godly living. Right? To be godly is is to be like God. God is generous and to be godly, to be a generous person, to love others, to be truthful. God is one who cannot lie. Always tells the truth. Here to be people, to be a godly person is to be a truthful person. Any any inward parts is, that comes out in the very words we say and actions we do. Right? And Paul's only listing a few things here, like he does. He doesn't. He just kind of just spills out a few few things to kind of get you going in the right direction, right? To be, be godly, be self-controlled, have a sound a soundness of of mind, a sobriety. You don't give yourself to excess in anything. You're you, you're you're self-controlled. You're you're properly proportioned in your eating and your appetites and your and your longings and desires and your speech and you just lead a life that has this this quality that, that grace brings about of, of self-control. And you know, these, these replacement virtues, I might call them, the ones that replace ungodliness and, and, and worldly passions and, and, and avarice and lack of self-control, they're ones that are appreciated by, they're generally appreciated by 
unbelievers and believers alike, right? There's no company or organization that will have listed that we're looking for people who lack self-control, who are not upright, and who are, who are very non-sober, right? People generally appreciate these things. And someone noted three of the four classic platonic virtues are listed here. So this is something that believers and unbelievers alike appreciate these. And, you know, C.S. Lewis even notes in Mere Christianity, he notes that unbelieving nice people are often more externally good than new people, depending on where someone is in their trajectory. So the distinctive in these Christian qualities of, of, of uprightness, of self-control, of a kind of general behavioral godliness, right? The, the distinctive feature in these qualities isn't necessarily what they look like to the human eye, but where they come from. These are fruits of God's grace in Christ. Grace is what distinguishes a supernaturally changed person from a superficially restrained person. You know, the Stoics had great character. They didn't have grace character. And Paul's talking about replacement graces, virtues that come from the grace of God in Christ. But one more point here. So that's inside. It, there's renunciation, there's replacement, and grace is at work. And, and it needs to be at work doing that. Paul says in verse 15, exhort and rebuke along these lines. Make sure this is going on in your life if you're a professing believer and follower of Jesus Christ. You know what? Do good even if you don't, you don't feel like doing it. Because for the believer also, faithful passions follow faithful actions. <laughs> Ask anyone who's a runner hardly ever feel like going out to run and then once you start running you can't stop <laughs> you look forward to it right faithful faithful passions often follow faithful actions for the believer it's a way we get trained so do right even when you don't feel like it and then those feelings will, will often follow they should but even beyond the work on the inside as grace comes to us from the outside there's this transformative upside here and you see it in verses 14, 13 and 14. And I would, I would say that this change, this, this grace operation, this work, it, it's animated and empowered when we see and in seeing what Jesus will do, right? Future hope is appearing, and what he has done, redeemed, right? Verse 13 says, waiting for the, our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, right? We're, we're leading these lives of, of, of gracious virtue and, and transformation, renunciation, replacement, right? And as we anticipate Jesus coming back, as we have that expectation, right, what he will do, will come back, but also on the basis of what he has done, verse 14, who gave himself for us, Paul can never get away from the atonement and the cross. He just, can't, he just can't get away from it. 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All of this comes from Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. He took on sin so that we could be rid of sin and be free of it. Right? He took on death so that we could truly live. That we could become sons of God. He gave himself. I can never get far away from that. The self-giving love and sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ is the basis for, for all of God's redemptive work that we experience. That purification. But look what he says. As a people, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We read Exodus 19 because I think Paul is drawing on that. Right? We saw in Exodus 19, God calling Moses up the mount, saying, here's what I want you to tell the people. Tell them how, with a mighty arm, I defeated the Egyptians. And how I bore them on eagles' wings. Care, nurture. And brought them to this place. Because I want them to be my treasured, special possession. Tell, remind them of what I did. What was done for them. And then tell them to do <laughs> basis of what I've done. Tell them how I redeemed them from Egypt, carried them, loved them particularly, and to now love me. It's almost like, it's a beautiful picture of how grace leads to joyful duty, zealous of good works, Paul says here. Zealous. What makes you zealous? One of the things is when you see what has been done. When you get reminded, like Moses is, remind, is told to remind Israel, of what God has done in Jesus Christ. What he has done to deliver. The grace he has shown. And you get transfixed by the stunning beauty of that. You, what can you do besides... Um, when I started taking uh, piano lessons years ago, and the teacher, you know, those of you who've taken lessons, you know, the teacher gives stuff you need to do. Play these scales, play this, start on this piece, you know, all this. Right? And I remember just like, oh, scales are so boring. Right? Scales are so boring. Man. But let me just soldier on, right? Um, and then uh, a whole bunch of students went to uh, a concert of a world-class pianist. And I'll never forget sitting there, seeing the possibilities of what somebody could do on 88 keys. And the sound, it was just like another, it was transcendental. It was just another level. After that concert was over, I raced to the studio and started practicing. <laughs> Why? What was it about that concert 
what was the concert able to do that my teacher wasn't able to do by mere words and kind of kind of legalistic enforcement? <laughs> I saw possibilities. I saw what could be. And duty, at least for a time, became delight in practicing because I was able to see. Here's the thing. When we see, you want, you want to lead a, lead a life that's zealous of good works. You want to be um, animated to really take up and endure suffering and pursue a life of godliness, self-control, and just all the kinds of graces that, that come as our lives become more and more like Jesus. You want that? One of the ways is to look long and hard, and this is what we do in the Lord's Supper, is to look back, not to look forward. We didn't concentrate on that. Look forward in anticipation of what's to come, the glorious appearing of our great God, the Savior Jesus Christ, but also look back and look what he has done in redeeming you. Remember the price that was paid, the costliness of it, the particularity of it for you. What is it we'll do in eternity? You read the scenes in Revelation 5 and Revelation 7. There's a mighty chorus of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and kindred. What are they doing? They're gathered and they're loud and they're singing. Who are they singing to? The lamb that was slain. So there's this recognition of what Jesus has done that should lead to this zeal to do. To be zealous of good works. So may God help us to do that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for Paul. Uh, cause the truth of it to sit in our hearts in profound, powerful, transforming ways. We don't want to be like those who, who see your word and, and, and that James uh, mentions look, as we look in a mirror and see the warts and we go away unchanged. So, Lord, take your truth, apply it deep into our hearts. May your word run to and fro and have great success. Blow away the chaff. May the eternal truth your infallible, authoritative word remain with us in Jesus' name. Amen.